Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Uh, Well, welcome to the first week of a brand new series that we're super excited about uh, called Lamentations. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Oh, boy. Like, what what a process and journey this will be. Uh, Lamentations, let's kind of orient ourselves to this this book. Uh, Lamentations is a book of ancient poetry. Uh, The subject is given away in the name. These are poems of lament. Um, And given that we are in the season of Lent, which has lament as kind of one of its key markers, and given that we've just come from, and in a lot of ways are still in, one of the more difficult years in recent memory, I thought it would be appropriate to turn to this biblical book uh, to see what kind of spiritual value uh, it may have in our lives and how God might be able to speak to us through the book of Lamentations. So we'll get to chapter one in a moment. Um, But I want to spend just a few moments orienting ourselves to the book, Um, because my guess is is that most of us, if not many of us, or many of us, if not most of us, have actually uh, maybe read this book once, maybe never spent very much time with this book, um, because it's just not exactly the the most uplifting book of the Bible, let's put it that way. Um, So... But just like every biblical book, it's important to understand that uh, this book does not exist simply because God thought it was like a great idea to include this, right? Um, This book exists because it's rooted and grounded in real people, in real history, um, and that it was born out of a context. Uh, And so the context is is this. It's written by an anonymous author. We don't know exactly who wrote it. Biblical scholars have some suspicions um, uh, or some thoughts about that, but in the end, we don't know who wrote this book. And it's five poems that reflect on the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in the year 587 BC. Uh, So that's the context of this book. So let's just spend a couple moments here. Uh, Remember, Jerusalem was the center of life for Israel. Um, If you were an Israelite, if you were part of the Hebrew people, Jerusalem was absolutely central to your experience, to your identity. Um, Remember this, Jerusalem was found in the land that God had promised Abraham. Uh, God had given David victory to establish Jerusalem as the capital. And then the temple was built in order to honor God and be a center for the worshiping life of the Israelites. And so absolutely the center. And yet, all of this history, this 500-year history leading up to this point, is all decimated and destroyed and brought down to rubble over the course of a year and a half. So the, the Babylonian siege, we think, lasted about a year and a half of war, suffering, famine that brought this city central to the life of Israel brought it completely to destruction. And then the inhabitants of the land brought to Babylon in what is called exile. And the exile, by far, was actually the most horrific time in Israel's history. 
Uh, it was nothing short of a national tragedy that meant the loss of comfort. It meant the loss of security. It meant the loss of identity. Um, now, remember, like once the people of God find themselves in exile, uh, then God has all sorts of words to say to them through the prophets. And we actually looked at that a couple years ago in our series called Embracing Exile. Uh, but the difficulty of exile is nonetheless the same. It's a very jarring event. And all that to say that Lamentations then does not exist in a vacuum. We don't read these words as though they just sort of exist out of nowhere, but we recognize that they were born out of very real suffering. And so, uh, Lamentations, five chapters, is a series of five poems. Each chapter is one kind of standalone poem of lament. And the lament poems found here are also found, uh, but they're not unique to this book. In other words, lament poems are found throughout the Psalms. And what's interesting about lament poems is that they are the people's words to God. In other words, it's the people speaking to God and crying out. And then in a really interesting turn, the, our words to God becomes part of God's word back to us. In, in other words, Lamentations has something to say about what it means to be people of faith, of what it means to operate in this thing called faith. Uh, and, and so the, there's value in lament. And the value of lament is found in what it accomplishes. And I want to submit to you right here at the beginning that a lament accomplishes at least three things. At least three things. First, lament is a form of protest. Lament is a form of protest. Uh, lament lets the world and God know that which is not right. <laughs> now, of course, God does not need to be informed of this, right? We're not, we're not, telling, we're not telling God information that the God doesn't know, but it's, it's sort of our expression to others and to God to say, this is not right, it's a form of protest. Now, I know that the word protest, like most words nowadays, is just really politically charged, right? Uh, but, but let's set aside for a moment uh, any kind of political feelings we may have around the word protest and just listen to the definition. Definition, according to Webster's Dictionary of protest, is, quote, a statement or action expressing disapproval or objection to something, end quote. That's protest. And lament is a kind of protest in that lament is where we name the pain, we name the suffering, we name the injustice in our own lives and also in the lives of others. So if you were, are following along with our Lenten practices in our Lent uh, booklet or our reflection book, uh, from Ash Wednesday to last Sunday, just that few days, we had some reflections on lament. And we encourage you to lament. And one of the practices of how you lament is to actually feel the pain and suffering, but also as best as you can, give it a name. Like give that suffering a name. What is it that is bothering me? What is it that is not right? And so lament is a form of protest. But lament also gives us a chance to express emotion. Um, when we experience suffering or injustice, there is emotion that rises up in us and it is good and it is healthy 
to like find an expression of that emotion. Now, there are unhealthy ways of doing that. And there are destructive ways, actually, of, of kind of feeling or letting out that emotion. But lament is a healthy way of expressing emotion when we are subject to suffering or injustice. Um, if you grew up in the American evangelical church, um, which I imagine many of you did, sometimes the Christian life is sort of misconstrued as being perfect, uh, leading us then to believe that we should only experience a, little, a rather small range of emotion, right? It's sort of like, Jesus is risen, and so that like sets aside any range of emotion from like here over to here, right? Like you can only experience this kind of narrow range of emotion because of the good news of Jesus. And what lament does is gives us permission and gives us space to express in a healthy and good and godly way that whole range of emotion. It gives us opportunity to express anger, as Grace was saying, or frustration, even disappointment um, to God or with God. We, we give, lament is space to express disappointment with God or anger at God. Okay, So lament is a form of protest. It gives us expression of emotion. It also gives us a chance to express confusion. Life is not a neat equation with predictable outcomes, <laughs> right? And everybody was like, yeah, yep, I know that. I knew that. And at one point, maybe I thought that if I did that, it would equal this, but, but like pretty early in life, we learned that life is not just like this equation with predictable outcomes, right? Um, that the, and, and actually, there are very few things that cause us to question the foundation of our lives or the character of God or any of these kind of things than when we suffer. Suffering brings about all sorts of doubt and questions and confusion, and that's okay. And lament gives us space to do this. So those are just three examples of what lament helps to accomplish that actually points us then to the value of lament. And I promise I promise I'm going to get to Lamentations chapter 1. <laughs> but I, I needed to like lay the groundwork here, okay? So, so a, little more, uh, a little more pavement uh, to, to a foundation here. Um, the, the mere existence of these poems in the scriptures shows us that the biblical story does not ignore suffering. Which then, of course, means that the Christian church should not ignore suffering either. Both our own suffering and the suffering of others. But let me, let me kind of let you in on a secret. In 15 years of ministry, I have never even considered preaching on Lamentations until this series. And I grew up in the church and I have never heard a series of teachings on the book of Lamentations. Uh, except maybe the kind of like... Uh, Reference, occasional reference to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23, which says, God's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Did you know that the lyric of that famous hymn is inspired by the book of Lamentations? Did you also know that is the singular hopeful verse in the entire book? 
It's like if you're looking for hope in Lamentations, you've got to go to chapter 3, verse 23, because it is nowhere else, right? And so growing up, not only did I never hear anything on Lamentations, when I did, it was the one hopeful verse. Uh, But here's the thing. Again, the biblical story does not ignore suffering, so the church shouldn't either. But evangelicals are really, really bad at lament. And I can feel the awkward side eye from my ministry colleagues when, like, announcing a a series on lamentations, right? Also, we kind of promote and, and, like, do social media things. Hey, here's a new series coming up and all of that kind of stuff. And usually we get like, oh, this is going to be great. Or here are a few likes and stuff this week. Hey, series on Lamentations. And nothing. <laughs> like people are like, am I supposed to like that? Or like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> like, you know, we need a more wider range of emotion even than we do on these kind of social media things. Because the reason that evangelicals tend to be really bad at this is we want to only express our faith in positive terms. So that when someone is going through something really difficult, instead of being willing to just sit with them in the pain, we tend to do one of two things. One is we tend to try to explain it away. Oh, this is, you're, you're suffering because of this right? We try to churn life into that kind of set of equations. Or as people of faith, we just try to like go instantly to these like rather empty platitudes, right? And I, I never experienced this so directly as, as when my uh, father died at age 60. I have never heard so many empty platitudes in my life <laughs> than, than when you have someone who just, who dies uh, due to disease and just way too early in life. And so we tend to either explain it away or we tend to try to go right to uh, empty platitudes. But what, what these poems show us is that the biblical story doesn't ignore suffering. But the, these poems actually do more than that. These emotional poems of protest and confusion give a sacred dignity to human suffering. These poems, the mere existence of these poems in our holy scriptures gives a sacred dignity to human suffering and essentially admits out loud that the human experience includes suffering and this should not be ignored and this cannot be ignored. So, with that orientation to Lamentations as a whole, I want to to read to you Lamentations chapter 1. Here's the thing to know about these poems. They are not short. Uh, In fact, Lamentations chapter 3 is very long. Um, But I'm not going to commit to this for the whole series, but to give you a sense of the book as a whole, I want to read chapter 1 in its entirety. I want you to hear the entirety of one of these poems. Um, and then we'll talk about it, okay? So I timed it before the service, around four minutes of reading scripture, okay? Uh, but let's, let's kind of settle in. It'll be on the screens if it helps you to kind of stay plugged in and follow along. The, uh, we'll go and it'll be on the screens as well. If it helps you to just listen, then I encourage you to just listen. But here is uh, Lamentations chapter one. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says this, Jerusalem, 
once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow, once queen of all the earth. She is now a slave. She sobs through the night. Tears stream down her cheeks. Among all of her lovers, there is no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and become her enemies. Judah has been led away into captivity, oppressed with cruel slavery. She lives among foreign nations and has no place of rest. Her enemies have chased her down. She has nowhere to turn. The roads to Jerusalem are in mourning, for crowds no longer come to celebrate the festivals. The city gates are silent, and her priests groan. Her young women are crying. How bitter is her fate. Her oppressors have become her masters, and her enemies prosper, for the Lord has punished Jerusalem for her many sins. Her children have been captured and taken away to distant lands. All the majesty of beautiful Jerusalem has been stripped away. Her princes are like starving deer searching for pasture. They are too weak to run away from the pursuing enemy. In the midst of her sadness and wandering, Jerusalem remembers her ancient splendor, but now she has fallen Uh, To her enemy, and there is no one to help her. Her enemy struck her down and laughed as she fell. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, so she has been tossed away like a filthy rag. All who once honored her now despise her, for all, for they have seen her stripped naked and humiliated. All she can do is groan and hide her face. She defiled herself with immorality and gave no thought to her future. So now she lies in the gutter with no one to lift her out. Lord, see my misery, she cries. The enemy has triumphed. The enemy has plundered her completely, taking every precious thing she owns. She has seen foreigners violate her sacred temple, the place the Lord had forbidden them to enter. Her people groan as they search for bread. They have sold their treasures for food to stay alive. Oh Lord, look, she mourns, and see how I am despised. Does it mean nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see if there is any suffering like mine, which the Lord brought upon me when he erupted in fierce anger. He has sent from heaven, uh, he has sent fire from heaven that burns in my bones. He has placed a trap in my path and turned me back. He has left me devastated, racked with sickness all day long. He wove my sins into ropes to hitch me to a yoke of captivity. The Lord sapped my strength and churned me over to my enemies. I am helpless in their hands. The Lord has treated my mighty men with contempt at his command. A great army has come to crush my young warriors. The Lord has trampled this, his beloved city, like grapes are trampled in a winepress. For all these things I weep, and tears flow down my cheeks. No one is here to comfort me. Any who might encourage me are far away. My children have no future, for the enemy has conquered us. Jerusalem reaches out for help, but no one comforts her. Regarding his people Israel, the Lord has said, let their neighbors be their enemies. Let them be thrown away like a filthy rag. But the Lord is right, Jerusalem says, for I rebelled against him. Listen, people everywhere, look upon my anguish and despair, for my sons and my daughters have been taken captive to distant lands. I begged my allies for help, but they betrayed me. My priests and leaders starved to death in the city, even as they searched for food to save their lives. Lord, see my anguish. My heart is broken and my soul despairs, for I have rebelled against you. And in the streets, the sword kills. And at home, there is only death. 
Others hear my groans, but no one turned to comfort me. And when my enemies heard about my troubles, they were happy to see what you had done. Oh, bring the day that you promised when they will suffer as I have suffered. Look at their evil deeds, Lord. Punish them as you have punished me for all of my sins. My groans are many, and I am sick at heart. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There is so much here. And we could talk about, as we will next week, about how God is portrayed and how are we to understand the character of God from these kinds of expressions and these kinds of poems in the scripture. But I want to focus in on, on just kind of one portion of this poem today. Did you notice that in this first poem, the city of Jerusalem is personified as a lady, as a widow? Personification is actually really popular in poetry because it helps to make intangible things more tangible. So in personifying the pain of a whole city as a woman who has been widowed helps us know that lament is not an exercise of the mind. Lament is to be felt. It is visceral. It is not an exercise of the mind as much as it is the cries of our heart and the crying out from our bodies. And what we notice is that at the beginning of the poem, the narrator stands at sort of an emotional distance. In other words, the narrator sees the pain and the narrator describes the pain, but the narrator does not really feel the pain. He just observes and describes it. He says the city sits alone, deserted. This once great city has become a slave. No one is left to comfort her. She is betrayed and alone. These are sort of descriptive things. And these are all horrible things, but they are descriptions of a person who is largely removed from the pain. But then this daughter of Zion, this widowed woman who is the personification of the city, actually begins to speak in verse 11. Now remember, part of the purpose of lament is to give name, is to name and give voice to pain and suffering. And what better way to give pain a voice than to have the personified character speak? And so she says, oh Lord, look and see how I am despised. This line really struck me. Does my suffering mean nothing to those who pass by? No one is here to comfort me. Those who might be available to encourage me, they are far away. This one really hit me too. My children have no future. Do you see the difference? One is sort of standing at an emotional distance, describing the destruction, describing the pain. But when we hear the widow speak, then it becomes personal. She sits alone, abandoned with no one to comfort her. She calls on the Lord to take notice. But there's something else going on here as well. Throughout the poem, this 
lady, this who stands and personifies the city of Jerusalem, actually recognizes her own sin and actually gives cause to her suffering to the Lord did this to me and was right in doing it because I have been unfaithful, right? And so she says, he wove my sins into ropes to hitch me into a yoke of captivity. The Lord is right for I rebelled against him. There is this recognition from the widow that, that she had a part to play in all of this. And again, this, we should recognize that when people are suffering, they, that doesn't mean that their theology is always right on. Do you remember our series on the book of Job? In the midst of suffering, Job says some things that theologically we got to take issue with. Job has friends that say stuff that we should really take issue with, right? And so the point here is not to say, oh, this perfectly describes the character of God or her own part in it for the city of Jerusalem, but rather to express the human experience. Are you with me? So she recognizes her own thing, her own part to play. But the widow then is simultaneously a sinful offender, but also describes herself as being victimized by sin. She feels the shame of sin upon her. And so there's this kind of push-pull, this tension, this incongruity, and it points us to a really important element that we don't often consider. And that is, how victims of sin experience sin, right? Listen to author uh, Sung Chan Ra in his book, Prophetic Lament. He says this, quote, traditional theology has emphasized, emphasized one-sidedly the sin of all people while ignoring the pain of the victim. Western concepts of sin lead us to feel guilty when we do something bad, but we often do not have the language of shame when we are sinned against. So here's what I think he's saying. He's saying in the Western church, we, we have language for uh, when we are sinful. We even have language for the kind of redemption and forgiveness and healing that comes from when we recognize that we are sinful, but we have little to no language to talk about the shame that we feel when we are sinned against. We have no language for how to talk about and recognize how others experience our sin. And what that essentially means then is that we also don't have language for how to talk about God's redemptive work over our shame. So in this poem, the Lady Jerusalem is positioned as both the perpetrator and the victim of sin. She feels the guilt for sin that she's committed, but she feels shame for the results of that sin. And there, again, there's so much to unpack. And, and I, I confess to you that I don't even know that I fully kind of grasp and understand all the implications of this. But I think that, that in, a, in a culture, and in particular in a church culture, this celebrates narratives of success, this becomes really important. This kind of two-sided nature of our sin becomes really important. Uh, because in narratives of success, 
shame is hidden, right? In other words, for example, if you have a tainted history, that tainted history is forgotten in favor of sort of triumphant stories. And so you don't want to be honest uh, about the shame because you want to promote the success and triumphalism, right? And so in the church culture then, that let's be honest, like American evangelical church of the last 40 years have sort of birthed this movement where the most important metrics are the size of your church, the size of your budget, and, and then we have this sort of elevation of um, celebrity pastors or pastors who become celebrities. And we celebrate them as having unlocked religious, religious success. That church, and by this I mean the capital C church, that church that sort of elevates and celebrates stories of religious success will have possibility to maintain like narratives of personal redemption of sin, but that church will likely lose any narrative of rescue from shame. Because success and narratives of success always try to ignore any shame or tainted history. You with me? Success tries to hide shame. And what lament does is it helps us to... (laughs) I'm just like looking at you all and you're like, I think this is good, but it's not very encouraging, right? Like, I'm trying to read your faces through the masks and that's what I'm reading. So (laughs) so what we need is we need to see and to recognize, and lament helps us do this, both sides of of sin, that there is this, uh, this guilt or this conviction that comes when we're the perpetrators of sin, and there is healing and redemption and forgiveness and mercy for that. But there is also a shame that is brought upon us when we are sinned against. And rather than just sort of ignore that or push that to the side, lament And if the church will learn to lament, I think we might also then learn how to recognize God's healing, redemption, and mercy over our shame. And so the value of lament is to sit, if only for a while, with the reality of our sin and the results of that sin. To to recognize how has that sin damaged others and damaged ourselves. Remember, sin is about a break in relationship. It's about a break of the shalom, the shalom that exists between you and me in community with one another, between me and God in community, me and creation. And when we sin, we sort of break that shalom, that synergy between everyone. So so sin at its core is this sort of break of relationship. And it affects both. There's damage to both me as the perpetrator, but also to you as the victim of that sin. And so what we need to do through lament is to recognize this so that we can invite God's healing work of redemption into our lives. Not just to release us from guilt of sin, but also to rescue us from the shame of our sin. Amen. Now, so what I want to encourage you this week 
is number one, just kind of sit with this for a while, right? Like, I think I, think I need to sit with this for a little while. Um, but I want you to spend some time this week thinking about the ways that sin has brought shame on you when you've been sinned against. But also maybe take some time to think about the effect of your sin and what that has been on others and invite God's redemptive work into both of those spaces. Now, let me end with a quote again from Sung Chan Ra. He says this, quote, We are too busy patting ourselves on the back over the problem-solving abilities of the triumphant American church to cry out to God in lament. Did you hear that? The reason we don't lament is we're too busy patting ourselves on the back for all of our success. He goes on to say, But lament cannot and must not be ignored. For in the biblical world, hope does not emerge from the act of recounting our successes. It is the desperate plea for God's intervention that arises out of lament that then reveals the flickering glimpse of hope. The prophet Isaiah will claim himself to be a prisoner of hope. And in a world where we have much to lament and where there is a reckoning going on in the church of what is the church going to be in the generations to come, there is cause for lament. But may that lament bring us the flickering spark of hope. Amen? Amen. Let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, today we are thankful for your guidance in our lives. For the ways that you lift us up and encourage us, for the ways that you speak to our hearts, there is much to be considered in this book of Lamentations, even in this first chapter, this first poem. So I pray, God, that you would help us as the people of Emmaus Road to just spend some time, and not just for the purpose of feeling down, But Lord, for the purpose of gaining hope, that that we might recognize the full spectrum of human experience, which includes suffering and naming things that aren't right. Lord, we are thankful to live in the light of resurrection, but may we not misunderstand that we can't feel the weight of pain and suffering. And so God, for those today who are actually going through a season of suffering in their lives, I pray that through this message and through this series, that they would be offered hope. God, for those that maybe this feels like a downer because everything is going great and and life feels really bright and hopeful at the moment. And this this feels like, well, why are we doing this? I thank you that they are experiencing blessing. And God, we, we recognize that most of the time life is not fully on the side of everything is terrible and everything is great, but it's this mix that there's things that are going really great and other things that are a struggle. So Lord, help us to live faithfully in the middle, 
and in this thing that we call human life. Be with us now, Lord, as we gather around your table. We pray it in Jesus' name.